Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his, danger, his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is the word of the Lord. During uh, this sermon series, uh, we've been dealing with some, some deep topics, wrestling with things like the problem of evil, why is God using bad things for good purposes, uh, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, how is God over all these difficult, painful things in our lives and in, in history. We've been wrestling with faith and doubt and the relationship between the two. But the vital question we're trying to answer, the practical, relevant question that is really, I think, behind all those deeper, greater issues, is the question that has entered the mind of every person at one time or another. I think it's applicable to everybody. Al Green asked that same very question in 1972 when he recorded, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? That's the question. How can you mend a broken heart? I don't think, by the way, he answers that question in the song. I've listened to it very carefully, looked at the lyrics. There's no answer. There's the question... And it's relevant to us, and it's relevant to everybody. What do you do with your troubled heart? How do you find healing? How do you find resolution to what many of us are feeling inside and struggling with and are, are, are experiencing brokenness on a deeper level? What do you do with your heart? Now, the Bible gives us two insights into that question, which are, are extremely helpful. The first one is that hearts are broken by sin. Sin is the problem. Any heart that's broken, any heart that's troubled, ultimately is troubled and broken because of sin. Now, that may be your own sin. It may be feelings of guilt. It may be feelings of shame. It may be feelings of regret. That may be your own stuff, something you did, something you thought, something you felt, maybe just you. But it may be also sin coming from outside and someone else's sin, someone else's brokenness, and now your heart is broken for someone else or because of someone else. The Bible tells us that's the problem. And in fact, two weeks ago when we looked at the first question that Habakkuk asked God, we can see that his heart was broken because of the sin of the people in Judah, in Jerusalem. He was, he was looking around and he's saying, these are God's people, but look, there's violence, there's division, there's idolatry, 
there's immorality in, in, among God's people. And his heart was broken over those sins. And then, of course, when he approached God and said, what, what are you going to do about that? God said, I'm going to send a Babylonian army, these cruel people, violent people, that will discipline God's people. So God is addressing the sin of God's people, but he's doing that through a greater evil, bringing Babylon to take over Judah, to destroy Jerusalem, to take people into exile. And now Habakkuk is wrestling with that sin. Now his heart is broken over the prospect of the Babylonian invasion. And that prompts his next question to God, which what we will be looking at today. The second biblical insight into that healing or the possibility of your heart being mended or, or healed is that that change, that healing does not come from within yourself. So sin is the problem, which could come from within or without, but the solution, the healing doesn't come from within. You cannot manufacture it, conjure it up. It has to come from outside. It has to come from somewhere else, some other source. This healing from outside is what the Bible calls grace. So healing has to come by grace. It has to come from outside, and that's how your troubled heart, your broken heart gets mended. Now this morning, I'd like us to consider Habakkuk's second complaint, and we will see how he is wrestling with the idea of a holy God bringing a cruel Babylonian army uh, to discipline the people of Judah. That's his question. That's what he's struggling with. But as he struggles with it, we will see as that, that he is waiting faithfully on God. He is he's watching and waiting, he's praying and waiting, he's expecting God to heal him, to intervene, to, to do something, to bring that grace into his life. And we will find that even as he is wrestling, even as he is praying and waiting on God, grace is trickling into his heart already, which of course helps us understand how the same grace can be applied to our own troubled hearts. So let's look at this passage under three headings. Number one, let's look at the heart of grace. Number two, let's look at the habits of grace. And finally, at the hope of grace. Heart of grace, the habits of grace, and the hope of grace. It's worth pointing out again, and this is a recurring theme in Habakkuk, it's a recurring theme in this sermon series, that when Habakkuk struggles, he turns to God. He goes to Him. And he deals with his doubts and struggles in the context of his relationship with God. Eugene Peterson uh, put it this way. He said he, he immerses his suffering in God. Immerses his suffering in God. He brings whatever he's dealing with, and he just puts it in God, into that relationship, into that prayer, into that communion with Him. He starts with God. He doesn't start with with, with his wrestling, he actually starts with God. And we will see that in our text, that he focuses on who God is. He looks at God's character. We'll look at that. But it's important to see how Habakkuk addresses his issues. He goes to God. He talks to Him. Now, to be a Christian is to have experienced a new birth, a transformation that uh, happens by God's grace. The Holy Spirit changes you, gives you a new nature, gives you a new birth, a new life. And the source of that life is God Himself. It's, in fact, His life, His divine life that is shared with us. And thus, the Christian's instinct is to rely on God for everything. 
and to go to God with anything. If you have been transformed as a, if you are a Christian, you've been transformed. If you have been transformed, that means that now God's life is flowing through you and everything good that you experience, you now know comes from God. You didn't before, but now you know. And now it's been internalized. Now it's you. <laughs> now you are living with God and God is working in your life and, and His grace flows through you and into you. That's Christianity. And a Christian then, living that life, instinctively always goes to God with everything. Because you know God is the source of life. He is the source of healing. And so you go to Him. Because He has the heart of grace. The source of grace, the heart of grace, the center of grace is God. Now you know that. And thus you bring all your struggles, all your doubts to Him directly. When I have any problem as a Christian... I must go to God. Even when I have a problem with God, I must go to God. That's the Christian way. Because everything comes from Him. Everything good, all healing comes from Him. Where else can I go? Now that I know who He is, now that I've experienced His grace, where else am I going to go to get, to get healing and grace? When Jesus asked Peter if he and the other disciples wanted to leave Him like Many others have. You remember that passage in John 6 where Jesus teaches and it's hard to accept what he teaches. It's confusing. And so lots of people leave. Even those who call themselves disciples leave. And the immediate group of followers, his disciples, remains. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, are you going to go too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, I don't understand what you're saying any more than the people that have left. But I know that these words are the words of eternal life. God's life is flowing through your teaching to me. Where else am I going to go? We've come to believe you are the Holy One of God. You are, you, that's it. There's no other person to go to. There's no other source from which we can get what we need. And so they stay. When the father of a boy with an unclean spirit pleaded with Jesus to heal his son in Mark 9, he cried out, I believe, he says. Jesus says, all things are possible to, to the one who believes. And, and he says, I believe. And then he kind of stops himself and says, but help my unbelief. I believe. I'm here. I'm, I'm turning to you. There's a certain level of faith that is required to look at him and to, and to approach him and say, heal my son. And yet he knows that he's also struggling with doubt and He's got questions, and, but where else is he going to go? I believe, help my unbelief. Hebrews 4, the passage that I read when we prayed, encourages us to draw near the throne of grace with confidence. Why? So that we would receive, so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So whether my faith is strong or not, whether I understand what God is saying or what God is doing, whether I am hurting or struggling or doubting, there is only one place to go for me, for the Christian, the throne of grace on which sits the Lord from whom all blessings flow. Habakkuk goes to God. That's the biggest lesson you can take away from Habakkuk is that when you struggle, when you doubt, when you question, you go to Him, you go to God. You talk to Him, you pray, you sort it out with Him. He welcomes you. He encourages you to come to Him. 
Habakkuk does that again. Remember, he's lodged one complaint, received an answer he doesn't like. Now there's another complaint. And he goes to God and he addresses God by his covenant name in verse 12. The Lord, the Lord, capitalized in your ESV Bible, meaning that this is Yahweh. This is that special Hebrew name that God gave his people and said, this is me, you know my name, I'm in a relationship with you, I'm committed to you, this is what you should call me. And so Habakkuk says, the Lord, he goes to him. It's significant that he, he doesn't see God as a, as a generic deity that's in charge of the world and he's got problems with the world, so he goes to the one who's in charge. It's not like that. He's addressing God as the covenant God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, the, the Holy One of Israel, the rock of the people of God. This is the kind of language that Habakkuk is using. He's, he's relying on the covenant relationship that God has had with His people for centuries. There's history here. He's going to a God that, that has some history with His people, history full of fulfilled promises and won battles and miraculous rescues, and this is who he's talking to. This is very specific. And that's why, in spite of the, the horror of the predicted Babylonian invasion, and it, and it was bad. It was as bad as Habakkuk anticipated it. But in spite of that, Habakkuk can say in verse 12, we shall not die. Why does he say that? He says it because he knows the covenant God. He knows the history. He knows the faithfulness of God over the generations. And even though he doesn't understand, and God knows that Habakkuk doesn't understand, how the Babylonians are going to fit into this story of God's redemption of his people. Yet he says, because I know who you are, I know what the covenant is, we shall not die. Somehow, somehow, we will be okay. God's people will be okay. Now, this covenant relationship is not only about God's faithfulness to Israel as a people, it is also deeply personal. Now, notice in verse 12 how Habakkuk addresses God as my God, my Holy One, not just the Holy One of Israel, not just the Lord, but, O oh Lord, my God. He knows He's God. He's talking to somebody He knows. Again, not a generic idea of God, not... God, if you're out there, kind of prayer. No, this is, this is, I know who you are. We've talked before. I've seen your work before. I know your character. I know what you do. I know your faithfulness over the years. So is he addressing this God? He knows him. And because he knows him, he's able to process his struggles in light of who God is. As much as Habakkuk complains about the cruelty of Babylon, he focuses on the character of God. The focus is actually on God. Habakkuk affirms who God is. He doesn't actually try to change his perspective on God. Now, this is a, a fallacy that all of us fall into all the time. Something happens in your life, and you say, God must not be the kind of God that I know because of what happened. Habakkuk does the opposite, and in fact, that's, that's a trait of faithful wrestling, faithful waiting on God. What he does is he says, I know who you are, I know what's happening. That doesn't change who you are. Help me understand how what is happening around me fits with who you are. Amen. That's his prayer. He said, I know who you are. This is your character. 
Now help me understand, help me accept, help me get a, get a handle on what's going on in my heart and in my life so that it fits with who you are. So I can, I can bring that in line and say, well, now it makes sense. That's what he's wrestling with. Habakkuk holds on to who God is and then asks for God to help him understand. It doesn't question who God is. He's just questioning how what happens fits with his character. This is the right way to doubt. Habakkuk worships God. Even as he complains to him, he worships him. I mean, isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we should do as Christians? Because he welcomes us, but it's he who welcomes us. We know him. So yes, we bring our struggles and our pain and our our doubts and our questions to him, but we also meet him as we do that. And he is worthy of our worship. and We can't help but focus on him, even as we struggle. Habakkuk worships the Lord as eternal. He says, you are from everlasting. Just, he's just reciting God's attributes. He's just reminding himself who God is. God is holy, unlike anyone else. He knows if God is holy, there's going to be things I'm not going to understand. So he's, he's anchoring his faith in that. God is sovereign. God ordains Babylon for judgment. I mean, God is doing this. He accepts that because God is sovereign. God is pure. He can't approve of sin. So how does this sin fit with what God is doing? The Lord created all people, and the people are valuable to Him, meaning that God cares about people. He cares about His creation. This is who God is. And of course, then Habakkuk looks at Babylon. They are a cruel nation that has no regard for other people. They worship themselves. They worship their military strength. They show no mercy to those that they conquer. And yet, the Lord says that He would use them to accomplish His purposes. And that's the crux of Habakkuk's problem. This is who you are, Lord. This is who Babylon is. You say you're going to use Babylon for your purposes. How is it going to work? How does it make sense? He doesn't understand. But notice Habakkuk's posture. He doesn't understand how God can do that, and yet he goes to God, trusts his character, relies on the covenant relationship with him, brings his struggles to God, because ultimately all grace and healing come from the Lord. Nowhere else to go. The heart of grace is with God. This is an example for us of faithful doubting or faithful wrestling or faithful waiting on the Lord. We all wrestle, we all wait, we all doubt. Let's just get it out, okay, and say we're all in that boat. But how we do it matters. And Habakkuk gives us this template. He tells us that this is how, this is why he's recording this for us so that we would know how we can doubt in our own lives, how we can doubt in a, in a faithful way. You doubt with God, not apart from Him. You go to Him. You trust His character. You trust His covenant relationship with you. You you think of His faithfulness. You think of His attributes. And then you wrestle through whatever, whatever you're dealing with in your life. But you start with God. Now, what does Habakkuk do after he expresses his doubts to God? He's looking at his character. He's looking at Babylon. Can't reconcile that. And what does he do next? Habakkuk 2, verse 1. This is a great verse. 
Habakkuk 2, verse 1. He says, now this is before God answers, so he's still waiting, he's still asking God. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The prophet faithfully waits for God to answer him. He faithfully waits for grace to flow from God into his life. He doesn't ask the question and run away. He asks the question and then he waits for the answer. There's a a resolve here, right? Habakkuk resolves to wait, resolves for for God to wait for God to bring that answer, to bring that healing to him. He says, while I don't understand how the Babylonian invasion fits with the character of my God, and my heart is troubled by the prospect of the Babylonian invasion, he says, nonetheless, I will continue to pursue God. I will continue to pursue him. I will not hide from him. I will not ignore him. In fact, I will wait faithfully. Habakkuk gives us a great example of a believer who is committed to sustaining his connection with God, even when they doubt and struggle. So he's saying, I am struggling. I am troubled. I don't know what God is doing. I don't understand what God is doing, but that will not deter me from pursuing God, from investing in my relationship with Him, from developing a deeper intimacy with Him. Even when we are hurting or struggling or cannot reconcile what God is doing with who He is and what He says, we are to continue to pursue Him through the practice of spiritual disciplines. I'm going to make it very practical. The application here is to pursue God through the practice of spiritual disciplines. The image here that Habakkuk gives us is the image of of a disciplined soldier at his post. He is there on the tower, keeping watch, no matter how he feels about the government inside the city or the enemy outside the walls. And so a Christian is to remain consistent and disciplined in Bible reading and prayer, in worship, in taking communion, in fasting, in service of others, in giving, in resting, in spiritual friendships, no matter how much you struggle or you doubt or you question, or you don't understand. Dave Mathis uses the term habits of grace that I borrowed for the sermon. Habits of grace to refer to spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are about habitual exposure to God's grace. That's what they are. It's about habitual exposure to God's grace. By practicing spiritual disciplines, we regularly place ourselves in proximity to the heart of grace. That's what you're doing. When you open the Bible, when you pray, when you come to church, when you take communion, when you fast, when you serve somebody, when you invest in a spiritual friendship, 
when you sacrifice, when you give, when you don't work on a Sunday, what you're doing is you're putting yourself in proximity to God's grace. You're saying, I am here to receive it. I am at my watch post. I'm on the tower. I am waiting for God to speak to me. I am listening. I've set this time aside to listen to Him. I'm investing in this connection with God. If God speaks, I will hear Him. If He heals me, I will receive it. You place yourself in proximity to God's grace. The Anglican pastor Thomas McKenzie uh, shared his experience of struggling with his faith. He said, once when I was in a period of serious doubt, I called up one of my seminary professors. I told him how I was struggling with the truthfulness of the Bible and the rightness of Christianity. He told me that I should lay the question of truth aside for a moment and consider beauty. He challenged me to find a more beautiful truth than Jesus and His gospel. I could not. I came to understand that I have nowhere else to go. This realization has been deeply transformative for me. When we commit to regular spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible and praying and participating in in church's worship and community and service, we put ourselves in position to experience the beauty of Jesus and His gospel. Whatever your issues are with truth, whatever pain you're dealing with, those are real things. I'm not in any way minimizing them. But the response to that is not to stop and pull away, but to actually go closer to Him. And as you do that, through the practice of spiritual disciplines, you place yourself in position to experience how beautiful Jesus is and how beautiful His message is. We take our stand at the watch post to experience God and to receive healing and grace and communication from Him. Jonathan Edwards described it as laying yourself in the way of allurement. Laying yourself in the way of allurement, meaning that you would be allured to Christ. You would be drawn to Him. You're not drawn yet, but you put yourself in position where He can allure you, when He can bring you in, where He can entice you with His beauty. Another image would be you go to the banquet, you sit at the banquet table, and maybe you're not hungry, but you're there. And when you are there, the sights and the smells of the feast, they actually make you hungry. They awaken your appetite, and now you realize how hungry you have been for this meal. Now, of course, a common objection to spiritual disciplines is that there's no use in persisting in them if they are not working. In other words, if I'm not getting anything out of my Bible reading, why do it? Isn't it just legalistic to keep doing it when I'm not hearing from God? I'm not experiencing anything from Him. If Sunday worship bores me, why go? Isn't that just legalistic? It's just forcing me to do something that's useless. Now, first of all, you don't know what God is doing in your heart through the disciplines. We have a very immediate kind of perception of how it's supposed to work. God works over weeks and months and years and generations. That's how God works. And so investment in Scripture, investment in prayer, investment in worship, 
is a, is a long-term investment, and God is shaping you through that, and often we don't know how it shapes us. It's like memorizing Scripture, right? You memorize Scripture as a child, maybe in a, in a Kids Connection or a similar program, and then when you're 60 years old, you remember <laughs> what you had learned, and you realize that that passage has shaped your life. Now, you didn't know it then. Then it felt like, oh, I just have to do it, and it's legalistic, and why are they forcing me? And now you can see that God has been working in your life. But secondly, we need to realize that healing doesn't happen if we walk away from God. At least by practicing the disciplines, there is a chance that grace can flow. If you shut off the channels of grace, it's not very likely that healing will come. Now, God can work all sorts of ways, and it is grace. I get it. But there are channels, there are habits, there are disciplines that God gave us. And he says, this is how I give you grace. This is how my healing comes into your life. So if you shut it off, you're saying, I I don't want healing. I don't want your intervention in my life. I don't want to hear from you. The opposite of what Habakkuk does. Habakkuk goes and says, I'm going to stay here until God answers. I'm going to be at my watch post. I'm going to be on this tower. I'm going to look and wait for God to respond. I have a problem with my yard waste um, pickup. And the problem is that it doesn't get picked up. That's the problem. There, other than that, there are no issues. But it doesn't get picked up. And probably about, we're in week maybe seven or eight now of my weekly phone calls. And I, I put it out at the right time, Tuesday night. I put, it, put the container out. Wednesday morning, it doesn't get picked up. I give them a day. On Thursday, I call. And I say, well, why? it seems like part of this arrangement is that I put it out, you pick it up, I pay the bill. But there's a step that's missing, that is the, the picking up of the yard waste. And, and so, so I have a weekly chat with lovely people at, at, the, at the waste management company, and, and, and we talk, and, and I say, it seems like something isn't working. They say, we're sorry, we're going to send somebody, you know, extra pickup. Sometimes they come, sometimes they don't. The next week I put it out again, and it doesn't get picked up, and I call again. So that's my routine now. <laughs> and I've realized that one of the fir- when you call, the first question they ask you, when do you put it out? And I say, well, I, I do it the night before, because I don't want to do it in the morning and miss the truck, so I do it the night before, like most people do, I think. That's a key question, because they want to know if it's out there for them to pick it up. And I cannot expect for them to pick it up if it's not out there. So every week, I take it out. At this point, I'm not expecting a whole lot without the phone call. And yet I know if I don't put it out, it's not going to get picked up. If I do put it out, it may or may not get picked up. But if I don't put it out, it's not going to get picked up. This is what John Newton says. If you get nothing from trying every day to go to the throne of grace, I can absolutely assure you that you are going to get nothing from staying away. If you get nothing from trying every day to go to the throne of grace, I can absolutely assure you that you are going to get nothing from staying away. If you are a struggling Christian, and all of us are to a certain degree, we're all struggling. If your heart is troubled by sin, and every heart should be troubled by sin, whether it's your sin or someone else's sin or the sins of others, sins of the community affecting us, commit to watch 
and pray. Take your stand at your watch post on the tower and wait for God to answer you. And that means practicing spiritual disciplines. That means having a regular rhythm of Bible reading. That means having a regular rhythm of prayer. That means having a regular rhythm of attending church and participating in worship and going to other Bible studies and small groups where you can create spiritual friendships and investing in them intentionally. That means taking communion. That means serving others and taking opportunities to sacrifice for others. That means giving that means resting, that means fasting, all those things. Those are spiritual disciplines. And you'll find many different lists, but they're all basically the same because they're from the Bible. We know what they are. That is how you wait on God. This is how we develop habits of grace so that God's grace flows into our lives and our troubled hearts get healed. But, let me answer the last question. Let's say you are waiting. Let's say you've been waiting for a while. Will grace come? Will healing come? How can we know that our watching and waiting will not be in vain? Well, because years after Habakkuk uttered his complaint, years after he resolved to take his stand at at his watch post, the Son of God was bringing his troubled heart to his Father in the garden. Jesus Christ took his stand in the dark Gethsemane as he tried to reconcile God's character with the prospect of the crucifixion. Go with me to Mark 14. Mark 14, verse 32. Let me read this this rich passage to give us the connection to the gospel and encourage us to keep waiting. Mark 14, 32. As they went to a place... And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Because Jesus wrestled. Because he wrestled and prevailed. My wrestling is not in vain. Because Jesus did not leave his watch post, I must not leave mine. Because Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, so can I. His faithful waiting pours grace into my waiting. 
Now think about what was happening in Jesus' heart. This passage gives us a window into what, what he was feeling, what he was wrestling with. In a real way, in his human spirit, he is wrestling with this. He was greatly distressed and troubled. His heart was troubled. His soul was sorrowful even to death. Deathly sorrow he's experiencing here. Here was the perfect person, no sin in his heart, never done anything wrong, felt anything wrong, thought anything wrong, planned anything wrong. This perfect person is about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. The godly person is about to be sacrificed for the ungodly. What we see in the garden is the wrestling of the human will and the divine will. And there's a great mystery here, that in the same person, there are two natures, divine and human. Jesus is both God and man, perfectly God, perfectly man, two natures, two wills in the same person. We see this mysterious wrestling of the wills here. And yet, that's very difficult for us to grasp, and yet there's something also very familiar here, something that we can all relate to, much like Habakkuk, much like you and me. Our human wills need to be brought into alignment with the divine will. That's what's happening in the garden. What's going on around us must be reconciled with who God is and what He wants. And so Jesus, like Habakkuk, like us, starts with God. I mean, notice what he does. He prays in the safety of his relationship with the Father. He prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Trust God's character. He trusts the Father's character. All things are possible to you. You are my dad. We are in this, we have history. We are in this relationship. And now I'm praying to you. I'm bringing my troubled heart to you. He trusts that even if God does not remove this cup, this cup of suffering, this cup of wrath, this cup of death, that somehow the Father's will is good. He's willing to trust the Father's will because He knows who the Father is. God is using evil for good. And though it is troubling and it requires wrestling and it creates doubts, ultimately Jesus rests in the character of God. This invasion of God's judgment on the cross will bring liberty and restoration to all who believe in Christ. What comes out of this anguished prayer, what comes out of this agony in the garden is the, the flowing grace into your life because he wrestled, because he submitted, because he recognized the covenant, he's recognizing the character of God, because he's saying, Abba, Father, not my will, but your will, human will, submitted to the divine will. Now there's an explosion of grace to us because he remained faithful. Three times Jesus pleads with the Father, and three times he submits to his will. Doesn't leave his post. And not only in prayer at Gethsemane, but even more importantly, when he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death, he remained faithful. Jesus went to the cross because he was faithful. And it is his faithfulness that saves us. The trouble, the doubting, the struggling sinners as we are, his faithfulness gives credence and hope to our wrestling, to our struggling, to our doubting. Look at Hebrews 5. 
verse 7, 8, and 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Do you see the faithfulness of Jesus here? Crying out to God, pleading with God. And God hears him, not in avoiding death, but in raising him up from the dead. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. For us, for us, Jesus disciplined himself and endured suffering. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ's death and his resurrection released God's grace into our lives and into our hearts. Dallas Willard calls the gospel grace in action. Grace in action. Praise God, Jesus did not give up. He didn't give up. He was faithful to the end, faithful unto death. And now we can come to the throne of grace, His throne, to receive help and healing because the throne of grace is the cross of Christ. And His grace flows from the empty tomb. That's the gospel. Trust in it. Even as you wrestle, even as you doubt, trust in it. 